Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon, a podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Kieran Brophy and over the course of this series, I am to bring you some of the stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the challenges facing our planet. Since we now famously live in an era of... Fake news. Uh, <clears throat> the question of how scientists and engineers effectively communicate their work to the public is now more important than ever. To find out some answers, I thought who better to enlist than someone who has spent the best part of 20 years educating the Brian Coxes of the future in science communication and presents the BBC World Service's science and technology programme, Digital Planet, that person is, of course, Gareth Mitchell. And Gareth will be joining us later in the episode, where he'll also be dishing out his pet peeves in science presentations. But first, aircraft parts, implants for your body, and even guns. 3D printing has proved to be disruptive, ingenious, and controversial. However, public perception of 3D printing, or additive manufacturing, to give it its posher title, is still stuck in 3D printing's humble beginnings of printing largely novelty items. This I tried to delicately put to Dr. Connor Mayant, a 3D printing specialist from the Dyson School for Design Engineering of Imperial College London, who lectures in the field. Um, <laughs> I, you know, the, it's, a fair, it's a fair assumption to make and um, no one's really at fault other than you know, that's kind of what's been covered in the media. That's what most people's... Um, experience of 3D printing is, but it's a much larger world than just printing random plastic objects in your house. And from quite humble and simplistic beginnings, the feel has become a lot more complex and, dare I say, dangerous. So, you know, today you can 3D print everything from pills to airplane parts. And there was even a guy in Australia imprisoned for 3D printing his own gun. Where do you see the, the field of 3D printing going? Since its beginnings, 3D printing really started out as something that we call just a rapid prototyping process. And it was extremely successful at that. But as the technology became more sophisticated, the materials grew, people understood more about how to use it and what the actual possibilities of this technology was. It started to become a manufacturing process in its own right. So. What, what we mean by that is you're actually manufacturing end-of-use goods. So it's no longer just a model. It's no longer just part of your design phase that helps you uh, identify errors. You're now actually creating parts that are going to go into use, that are going to be sold to consumers. So you mentioned uh, parts in, in aerospace. They have a very keen interest in something we call lightweighting. They want to remove mass from planes without risking or increasing the risk of failure. And you mentioned at the end about sort of the dangerous side of this. Because of this birth of people manufacturing parts at home and finding out that they have the capability to do this, you had a couple of individuals in the US which started this, you know, unsurprisingly, and they were designing and making uh, 3D printed guns. This became a big case in the US um, and it's quite an interesting one in that for a lot of people in in America the right to own a gun is a big deal and they want to protect this. They also saw it as their freedom to manufacture their own gun. Now the US government disagreed 
And the skeptical side of that, you could say that you have very large arms manufacturers in the US who have a vested interest in protecting their ability to create weapons and sell those to customers. If those customers realize that they could just 3D print their own gun at home, they start to lose that market, they start to lose that power. And therefore, it, it, it really became this fight in the US between lobbyists who wanted to protect their market and a sort of um, a freedom, a non-censorship uh, issue. It's more of a right to cash inflow from, from the NRA rather than right to bear arms, perhaps. Um, so closer to home, Connor, you're a lecturer, as, you, as we said at the top of the piece, in the Dyson School of Engineering. What new exciting research is happening in Imperial around 3D printing? There, there is some really exciting stuff going on. and there's and Good answer. <laughs> and thankfully at Imperial College, there is work going on in, in the Triple E department on 3D printing satellite components. We've got in mechanical engineering in the medical faculty, there's some fantastic work on 3D printing implants. And that's both what you might think of your typical implant in terms of a hip or knee replacement, but also some really exciting bionic uh, implants. So something that's more closely interfacing with with the biological system, working in partnerships with them. Um, There's some fascinating stuff going on in totally novel forms of heart pumps. That's very interesting. And you know, you you mentioned it earlier, 3D printed uh, pharmaceuticals. A pill is just a pill. It's just a little round thing. You know, it doesn't geometrically, it's nothing to, to get too excited about. But what we can start to do is then tailor the ingredients of that pill specific to you. So between each pill, I'm able to change the exact dosage of the ingredients. I could also layer that so that the delivery method, the time at which it breaks down, which bits are, which ingredients hit you at different points, I could control that. I could tailor that again specific to your needs. What's the best thing you've ever 3D printed? <laughs> um, wow. Um, well, we're working on a project at the moment where we are developing new breathing masks, things like CPAP masks, uh, which are a very common thing in, in hospitals and for people who have sleep apnea and stuff like this, you have to wear them all night long. Getting a really good fit is really important. Um, otherwise, you get leakage, you get blisters and things like this. So to test these, we needed to... We didn't want to put these on human subjects just because... Getting feedback from human subjects could be quite subjective and one person's idea of comfort is different from another. So we started creating uh, mimics from just silicon rubber and stuff. So uh, essentially downstairs in our lab, we're starting to create something that looks uh, like something out of a scene in the Game of Thrones, which is just a wall of faces. And, and it's quite freaky and you can go up and you can start to like poke these faces and, and we've even managed to like match the mechanical uh, properties of the face quite closely. So that is like, if you feel your cheeks, it's very soft and squishy, and you feel the bridge of your nose, it's very hard and stiff. And and when you're looking at your face, because we, we scanned ourselves to begin with, because that was the easiest thing, it, it's quite an odd experience where you start poking a, a very <laughs> good mimic of yourself, basically. Um, that's probably the most fun we've had with the 3D printing. That's all sounds amazing. Connor, thanks a million for joining us. And you can find Connor and his face, both real and 3D printed, in the Dyson School of Engineering. Um, Thank you very much, Connor. Thank you. Dr. Connor Mayant there. 
Next up, as promised, we look at the role of science communication with Gareth Mitchell, a lecturer at Imperial, whose BBC World Service programme Digital Planet, formerly known as Click, is listened to by a global audience of millions. If you thought this was a case of David interviewing Goliath, you'd be right. First off, I put it to Gareth that, in an age of 24-hour news in one hand, and over-competitive funding and academia on the other, is there a risk that scientists and journalists could try to overplay scientific results for their own gain? Well, that's, there's a huge tension there, isn't there, that of this long-standing, long-held temptation, certainly by science communicators and journalists, to exaggerate or to hype things up in order to persuade their editor that theirs is the best story and we've got to run it this week. But I suppose the question is about, well, what about on the scientist side then? Is there pressure amongst the scientific community to... I don't, I'm trying not to use the word hype, but to you know, exaggerate their their work or to um, to exclaim it in order to rack up those ref points and get those appearances on Radio Four or whatever they need to do. And that's, I suppose, because I'm not a scientist, I can hide behind just being a media person to say, well, I, I don't know, I'm not a, a lab researcher or a, running a lab with the, you know, with all the pressures that I might have in that situation. But that's that's actually really funny. There's a certain amount of trust that you need to put in that scientist that you're interviewing. Yeah. That he or she is, is you know, true to the science and not wow. over-egging it. Well, that's a really complicated relationship of trust between the interviewer and the scientist in in that case, I suppose. And the the bit I worry about most is, as the journalist, whether the scientist trusts me, you know, if behind their sciencey eyes they're thinking, this guy's out to get me, you know, he's out to hype up my work, to say that this rather obscure molecule I'm working on is going to cure cancer when it obviously isn't. And so I'm acutely aware of that trust relationship and understandable suspicion, I suppose, among scientists about what the journalist is playing at. Another thing that's changed over over those 20 years is the sheer quantity of written, spoken, visual news that you can get now from all various types of sources. You know, whatever you believe, you can reinforce it by going to a certain website and and believing it. And that's yeah. and that's surely quite a dangerous thing. I I, th- I think it must be really. It's it's. I mean, so, yeah. Over that twenty years that I've been involved with science communication, of course, there's been that enormous shift. And when I first started teaching radio, for instance, it was one of about four modes of communication that a, an aspiring science communicator would be involved with, along with print. And in those days, it was just print. <laughs> you know, like newspapers, dead tree media, and it might be museums. You know, so the channels were fairly defined, and of course, everything's merged together. So. Now now I might be teaching radio or audio production, as I should now, you know, kind of more contemporarily call it, uh, to a museum's person saying, well, if I want to be a museum curator, it's important that I have production skills because video or audio might be part of exhibiting works to the public. Um, so, uh, but coming back to your question about the echo chamber, and I suppose you have seen this emergence of the echo chamber, people can choose to get their news wherever they want. And I'm sure many people, especially younger people, are getting news as much from their Twitter and Facebook feed as they are from, or probably more than they are from Radio 4, for instance. So I suppose behind your question was that tendency to just follow the information sources that you particularly like and then that reinforces your own biases and then the algorithms jump onto that and accentuate the whole process and welcome to the echo chamber. And yeah, I think it's a problem, but I 
maybe because I'm still a bit old media, you know, I'm still a very BBC person when I'm not here. I, you know, I'm still reassured by how many downloads our podcast gets, you know, and that we, we spend all our time worrying about BBC production values and fact checking and stuff like that. And I think people are getting better because they have no choice to, but to get better at understanding that it's not just about listening or, or consuming some information but also understanding more about how that information came from where that information came from and whether it is to be trusted or not so so in some ways I'm I'm, I'm probably being a bit curmudgeonly but perhaps we just need to treat the audience like grown-ups and most Maybe I'm call me naive. I'm, maybe this is blind optimism, but I'd like to think that most people, in the same way that if you're, you know, you're, you're just in the pub one evening and then some dodgy geezer comes in and offers you some kind of dodgy project, you just say, "There's something I don't trust about you. I'm not, I'm not really going to go further with this." Don't we do that with our online sources? Don't we? Shouldn't we just accept that the audience has grown up enough to understand that there's a difference between a mainstream fact-checked media organisation and then some idiot on Twitter? So, what advice would you give maybe a listening PhD student, postdoc, professor, how to be a good communicator of science? The best science talks I'm sure we've all seen of, of those who've been impassioned about their about their research. But maybe maybe we could flip it on on its head. Are there are there pet peeves that you have <laughs> when you hear a science talk? Are there are there big no nos in the science communication world? Hell yeah! And of course, the obvious which you'd expect me to say is just using far too much jargon. You know, speaking yeah. to non scientists as if they're scientists. Uh, so so how do you? I mean, of course, one you know the question is well, okay, how do you help a scientist not do that? And you know, of course, you can sit down and go forever. You know, almost do a one of those find and replaces like you'd have in a Word document. So every time you're about to say toxicity, say bad stuff or poisonous, so I don't, whatever the, the right word is. Mm. So, you know, you could very tediously go word by word through all their difficult jargon and then de-jargonise it. But I think a better way, maybe a slightly softer way, dare I say it, is just understand your audience. I think the best communicators are people who have empathy. Just, you know, imagine you're that audience. And it could be, uh, a group of nine-year-old school kids or it could be a load of your fellow professors at a learned conference or it could be Radio 4 or whatever it is. Who are these people? What do they care about? What's going through their mind? You know, it's just about, if anything, just about being a nice, empathic human being. And I think once you know what they care about and what they know, then all the other stuff, like not saying too much jargon or not sounding too much in your ivory tower... I think just follows. I think just, it sounds like a very softy thing to say, but just know your audience. But maybe there's something in your own personal story, something that happened to you in your development as a human being that made you really, really care. Some personal insight into what you're doing and why it matters to you is, yeah. I think, the first step in telling an audience who are about to switch off and listen to something completely different and go back to line of duty to tell them why what you're doing should matter to them as well as to you as the scientist. You're now a presenter on BBC World Service. I was just wondering how you got into the whole science communication thing in the first place. Did you have your own road to Damascus moment? <laughs> so the Damascus road, you know, light bulb moment, if we can mix those metaphors as I just have, uh, was I did work experience on a science TV programme called Tomorrow's World, of which I'd been a huge fan for my whole childhood. And 
then I went to radio and I had an amazing time working on Tomorrow's World. I was working with my heroes, like Judith Han I'd watched on TV and now is, I wouldn't say working with her, but one of the lowly <laughs> kind of runners who was servicing what she and the other production people needed. But coming back to the light bulb moment, but it was going then over to do work experience in radio that as much as I had enjoyed the bright lights of television and Tomorrow's World, I thought these are my people, this is my thing. I completely love audio and all these dreams I'd had and they were dreams that I will work on tomorrow's world one day um, and I will work in TV I just thought no radio is so much for me better I'm not saying it's a better medium but it just suited me so so the route from there was work experience doing a lot of freelance reporting for the science programs on the BBC World Service and then a, a bit of freelancing then over onto Radio 4 and 5 Live and then that led to being the stand-in presenter on the technology programme Go Digital on the BBC World Service. So I was doing a lot of reporting from them, so it just meant when the presenter went away, they then just used me to act up, as it were, as the presenter. And then one day, that presenter said that she wasn't coming back, she wanted to do other things in her career and move on, and she's ended up in an academic career. And um, I've just carried on standing in for that presenter. Twelve years later, I'm still standing in for her. So I'm just secretly hoping she doesn't come and ask for her job back because it is officially the best job in the world. There is no better job than presenting a technology radio program. Better jobs, not even astronauts. It's, it is the best job in the world. I'm telling you right here, right now. And I do it. It's great to hear a passion science communicator. Gareth, thanks for joining us on Never Lick the Spoon. You're welcome. And that's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. My thanks again to Dr. Connor Mayant and Gareth Mitchell for being such enlightening guests. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. Thanks for listening and always remember, never lick the spoon! <laughs>